Keeping Accentricity online and available for free costs a little bit of money each month. So from time to time, we need to think about how we fund it. To help with this, we've teamed up with Glasgow-based artist Kat Engel and asked her to design us an Accentricity t-shirt. You can find them by following the link in the episode description or by going to the Accentricity website. If you'd rather support the podcast in another way, you'll also find links to our Patreon and Steady subscription pages and a link for making one-off donations. If you don't have any cash to spare, you can still help out by telling a friend about the podcast, by posting about it on social media, or by leaving a review on the podcast streaming service that you use. All of these things are also massively helpful. This is Accentricity Series 2, The Moving Project. Stories about migration, language and identity from around the world. Over the past year, we've been working with a group of people, teaching them how to podcast and helping them to tell personal stories about the experience of moving from one place to another. This is Claire's story. Claire was born in Scotland, but moved to England at the age of nine and then moved back to Scotland again as a teenager. Now she researches people's relationship with Doric, the variety of Scots spoken in the northeast of Scotland. Part of that work means examining her own relationship with Doric, as someone who has roots in the area, but who hasn't always stayed rooted in one place. First, you'll hear Claire's 10-minute audio piece, where she examines her own linguistic identity and how it relates to her work and her relationships. Afterwards, you'll hear a conversation we had shortly after she'd finished it. In it, we dig a bit deeper into some of the ideas that came up in her episode. Where home is, how it feels to move, finding your linguistic identity, and the connections between language and social justice. But first, here's Claire's audio piece. I'm Claire Needler and I live and work in the northeast of Scotland. In this podcast, I'm thinking about Doric, the variety of Scots traditionally spoken in this area. Here's a clip of two broad Doric speakers from Peterhead, a fishing town about 20 miles away from where I live. We were brought up right grammar. Okay, even though it was grammar. even though it was Doric, you just say the right thing. Aye. 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 Aye, just exactly. You can listen to more of this and other varieties of Scots too on the community page of the Scots Syntax Atlas website. For the last 15 years or so I've lived on a farm in Aberdeenshire and my husband's family has farmed here for over 200 years so I'll probably always be an Inuit comer no matter how long I stay. I'm doing a PhD at the Elphinstone Institute, University of Aberdeen. I'm researching contemporary use of Scots and I'm learning Doric too, and this causes some friction between my husband Hamish and I. Who do you think can speak Doric or should speak Doric? Or Well, people who've been brought up in this area and speak Doric anyway. That's your natural Doric speakers. And uh, anybody else that wants to learn it, that's going to be a boost. I think it's really interesting that sometimes you find it funny when I'm trying to speak Doric. Because I think it makes you nervous or something. It doesn't make me nervous. It's just that you're, you're not a natural speaking uh, Doric speaker. So so it doesn't doesn't seem natural. And I haven't heard you speak Doric before. You studied it. Okay, so it doesn't seem natural to my husband. But surely studying a language is the only way to learn, unless it's your mother tongue. What is going on here? I think I need to dig a little deeper. Why is it different for you when you hear me trying to speak Doric than when you hear me trying to speak French? Well, because uh, most Doric speakers are, that's the native tongue in this area. But if I tell you that I'm learning Polish as well, so at the moment at school I did loads of languages. Mm. I did French and German and Latin and Spanish a little bit of Russian at uni, lived in the Netherlands, so learnt Dutch, and at the moment I'm learning Doric and Polish. But it's Doric that you find problematic. It's something that 
isn't uh, natural to you. Whereas if I'm speaking to people, because I've been brought up in this area and the farming community, if I'm speaking to people, uh, country people and all that, then I will go into a, yeah, Buckingham dialect. I'd just like to understand a little bit more about why me speaking Doric is different from me speaking French because when I speak French I'm clearly not a native speaker and I probably have what might be considered to be a bad accent as well but it doesn't, like when we go to France it doesn't embarrass you if I speak French so why why is it different for Doric? Well, I haven't this hard you speak Doric in the uh, uh, to your friends. I don't think you've heard me speak French to my French friends either, though. No, because they can speak perfectly good English. And why is that different? French is a different language. And Doric's more a colloquial local language. This is a key point. Doric is a variety of Scots which is now considered to be a language, but in the past was often thought of as slang or bad English. Clearly Hamish is proud of his part in the local community and Doric or the Buchan dialect is an important part of that. He continues. Uh, it would be a shame to see in 20 years time nobody speaking Doric. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's part of our culture and uh, and it would be a shame to see an end of it. If you were trying to keep Doric going, what do you think would be the best things to do? Yeah, have some classes and bothy ballads. Just so you know, bothy ballads are folk songs about farming life. How do you, what do you think about outsiders coming here and learning Doric? Uh, people who are like the Polish Lithuanians or whatever that uh, don't understand what uh, people in Fraserburgh and Peterhead are saying because, uh, when they work in the fish factories. So why does that make sense to you that someone from Poland or Lithuania should want to learn Doric so that they get on better at work but someone like me who would be learning Doric for study purposes is strange to you. Why is it different? It just sounds a little bit different because you've got a, uh, an English accent. Now I'm the one feeling uncomfortable. I was born in Scotland but spent my teenage years in Croydon, South London. When I lived in England I was teased for sending Scottish and although I've been back in Scotland for over 20 years, I still don't sound like I should be able to speak Doric. What is going on here? I don't see the Doric as just a dialect. That's my friend Dawn. She's a linguist and a teaching fellow at Aberdeen Uni. Like me, she studies Doric, but like my husband, Doric is part of her family life. I see it as like a way of life up here in something that's really deeply ingrained in the Scottish psyche. Doric is, you know, my granddad's appointment and, and the way he used to speak and everything. That's Doric for me. It's something much, much, much deeper than just using the words. This really chimes with some of what Hamish said. People from the farming community are real Doric speakers. It's more than just a language, it's the psyche and the way of life. But what does that mean for people who are trying to learn? How on earth can we find a way into this language when we start with learning the words? I asked Dawn how her thinking had changed towards people learning the language. I think in terms of like hearing folk from out and about speaking Doric, I think I think what I said to you at the time was like people were saying to me they were learning Scots and I was always like, well, what Scots? Because I don't see it as being this like monolith, yeah, that can, that can just be learned as like one big thing. Time for some clarification. Scots is one of three indigenous languages in Scotland, alongside English and Gaelic. It is spoken by more than 1.5 million people, and there are many regional varieties of Scots, including Doric, also known as Northeast Scots, which is what we're talking about in this episode. It's bundling it all up together as Scots that's annoyed Dawn. But I suppose quite a lot of it is to do with my own 
um, my own biases and my own sort of perhaps lack of linguistic self-esteem um, because I couldn't see why anyone would want to learn it when I'd been discouraged from speaking it probably. And Dawn's not alone. In her research she found similar attitudes and experiences time and time again. I think people need to be taught about the validity of the language they speak. So in my own research I've, I've come across lots of Northeast youngsters saying stuff like oh we just speak make-up words there's made up words or we just speak slang and I think well maybe if you knew a bit, a bit you know a bit about the history of what you speak and a bit about how it's connected to other languages and how those words have evolved and maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't feel the same. I think this probably gets to the heart of what's going on with Hamish. If native Doric speakers were discouraged from using it perhaps it's not that surprising that they find it strange when people want to learn it now. Um, so I think in that regard, my my thinking's probably changed a bit now, and I think, well, well, why not? Hearing Dawn, who is a native speaker, talk about her lack of linguistic self-esteem makes me think of my own lack of confidence as I've been learning Doric. Within the classroom environment, I definitely feel that my Doric is improving, but Hamish is right. I don't speak Doric with my native-speaking friends, and I definitely don't try it out at home. What is stopping me just giving it a go? I think one of the main problems is the proximity of Scots linguistically and geographically, I suppose, to English. And I think that's where this sort of almost neurosis comes from. If I was to start speaking in French, then that would be so different from speaking in English that it wouldn't, there would never be any risk of it being viewed as like appropriation or a caricature. So, maybe Hamish doesn't think it's funny when I'm speaking Doric. Maybe the discomfort or nervousness I thought I sensed is because he thinks I'm appropriating his culture or laughing at Doric speakers. I suppose if you were to speak, start speaking French or German or Russian or whatever, that's putting a whole other hat on, isn't it? Ah, so all foreign language speakers know that they are speaking another language, but some Scots speakers don't yet recognise that Scots is a different language than English. Yeah. Because I, would, I wouldn't hear a French speaker and say, oh, you, you've just made that up. <laughs> you know I mean, that's just, you, you wouldn't think of doing that to someone who speaks another language. So why do we do it with, why do we do it with Scots? I wonder if it's got something to do with marginalisation. And the fact that Doric speakers have probably felt marginalised at some point for the way that they speak. And that sort of digs in a really strong sense of identity. So then when someone else is learning it, maybe it sometimes feels like they're, like they're just trying on your clothes for a second, but that they're not going to have to live with them. Am I just trying on Scots as if it was someone else's clothes? I think there is some truth to this. It doesn't yet feel like my own language, and I'm not sure if it ever will, to be honest. I went back to Hamish to ask what he thought the future holds for Doric and how best to keep the language alive. Well, by bringing in uh, a little bit of education on uh, local history and how Doric was used as a language and still is used as a language. On this journey, I've seen that there isn't a simple answer to why people feel the way they do about Scots. It's not just because I don't have a local accent that I feel uncomfortable speaking Doric with my husband. But perhaps because I feel like both an insider and an outsider, I can begin to work through these complicated feelings and encourage others to do the same. You moved about quite a lot as a child, so what are your memories mm -hmm. of, of moving? What was that like? Um, well, my early move when I was three, I don't really remember very much, except that my neighbour, we moved the day after my third birthday, and our neighbour gave me a packet of Smarties that I could eat in the car, a big box of Smarties, so that's my only memory really from that one. Um, but my parents also split up not long after I moved to Aberdeen, so then we moved house a few times in between, so really, my early childhood, we moved a lot. 
sometimes in the same town, but every couple of years we moved house. So it just kind of became normal to move a lot. But definitely moving from Scotland to England was a bigger deal. We'd never been abroad and we were going to go to holiday in Tenerife for the first time. And my stepdad got a job in London. So instead of going abroad, which was hugely exciting when I was nine, we got on the train the sleeper train with the car and the pets and everything and and traveled to London overnight and um, never got our holiday abroad until many years later but um, got to start this new life but it was it was really different um, Aberdeen was very well as I remember as a child in the early 80s, it was kind of, I guess, just about the time that the oil boom was starting. So Aberdeen was still pretty homogenous, pretty white, pretty Scottish. And then going to just outside London was really vastly more diverse. And one of my earliest memories is going to McDonald's and we didn't have one of those in my part of Scotland anyway, and seeing all these faces, all these people from different ethnic backgrounds and all these busyness, this, this busyness, and also going to this such an American idea of McDonald's, it was just spectacularly different than anything I'd known before. Do you remember how how aware you were of the linguistic differences at that age? Like, do you remember... Under, like understanding that your accent was different from a Croydon accent and and hearing different accents and sort of understanding that yeah absolutely absolutely when I got to school um yeah I really clearly remember them pretending that they didn't understand what I was saying because of the way I was talking and using that to kind of exclude me from games playground games um yeah, which is just mean, really. Um, and then also, but it didn't feel so mean. People would kind of parrot back to me, like try and copy my accent, but that didn't feel, it wasn't horrible. It was just curious, I think. And my sister is 11 years younger than me, so she was born in Croydon. So when she was learning to talk, she had a really South London accent. But we moved back to Scotland when she was three or four. And so she very pick, quickly picked up a Scottish accent and... Yeah, I guess a bit of sibling rivalry. I was always kind of envious of her that she is pretty much the only one in the family who fitted in linguistically in in all the places we lived because Mm. of the age she moved about. Whereas I was always, I think when I was in England, I was very conscious that I was Scottish and very much wanted to hold on to my accent because you would think at nine I could have lost it if I'd wanted to. But we still had family in Scotland. We still came to Scotland for all our holidays. And yeah, I just think it was definitely a really important part of my identity. And then when I was 16 and we moved back to Scotland and I got teased for sounding English, I couldn't stand it. You know, that that seemed so unfair, like a double bind. And in England, as a Scottish person, I was a curiosity. Whereas in Scotland, as an English sounding person, that was definitely less good, you know. Um, yeah, and that felt really unjust that I was that I was kind of persecuted for being the English English oppressor when I wasn't English, and when I just experienced years and years of being teased for being Scottish already. Did you think of yourself as having a Scottish accent at that point when you moved back from England and then people were like, oh, actually, you sound English? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I'm not English enough for England, so... (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that was tough. But then by the time I got to uni, which was only a year later, I went to Aberdeen Uni when I was 17, and that was mainly because my dad still lived in Aberdeen and I wanted to come to somewhere that was really familiar after all this moving around. Mm. And I had a great time. I really loved it. But towards the end of my time in Aberdeen, I met somebody who said to, who I kind of like a casual acquaintance who said, but you speak such good English. And I thought, what do you mean? And she said that all the time she'd known me, so for four years already, she'd assumed I was German. Oh. And that, yeah. And that was 
equally strange as a native speaker <laughs> to be thought of as not a native speaker by somebody, some casual acquaintance who didn't know me from anybody else. That's really that interesting. Was strange. I wonder why mm-hmm. they thought German. Huh. Yeah, I know. I know. And then when I moved to the Netherlands when I was in my early 20s, I spent two years there and I was working on English language dictionaries. So I wasn't really kind of integrated that much, but I did put a lot of effort into learning Dutch. And although I couldn't speak it very well, I could read the newspaper and watch the telly and stuff by the time I came back. And then, of course, ever since then, people have always said, where are you from? And when I've said, well, I'm from here and here and here, they always say, oh, it's the Dutch I'm hearing. And I think that's really strange because it must be the smallest linguistic influence on my accent of all of them, particularly now I've been back for more than 20 years. It's so funny. Is it just people who just don't know how to place you? So they... Yeah, probably. Because probably. to me, I think what I just hear your accent is Scottish. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Finally, I pass, except within the farming community, of course. <laughs> so, so now you've lived in. So, how long have you been in Aberdeenshire now? Is it Aberdeenshire you're in? Yes, yeah. I'm in Aberdeenshire on a farm. Um, I've been here for. I've been on the farm for 15 years and I've been back in Scotland for about 20 years. And then you're married to Hamish. Hamish, who's a farmer, and his mm. family has lived here for hundreds of years. So do you feel pretty rooted in that particular area now? Um, I think... That varies, actually. I think I def- when I moved back, I definitely wanted to move home. Um, and when I had children, it was really great that my parents were nearby and my in-laws were out next door. So I felt that I had all the family support network around about me that I hadn't really had when I was growing up. So in that sense, I'm definitely back where I belong. And that... And in that sense, I do feel rooted. But in terms of the very settled farming community who don't go anywhere for generations, I definitely don't feel that rooted. And I think that's one of the reasons I have been drawn to doing so much work with different migrant groups, because although my experiences of moving to England as a child are not really comparable to an adult moving from Lithuania to Aberdeenshire, say. I think there are some commonalities and I empathise and relate to that experience more than to people who've always lived in one place all the time, I think. But having said that, you know, sometimes I think when my kids leave home, then I could go anywhere again. Um... But what I really want to do is go and do something like teach English in Bolivia for a year or two and then probably come back to Aberdeenshire and then probably stay in Aberdeenshire. So yes and no, I guess I feel a bit conflicted about that, but like everything else. Do you think Hamish feels more rooted than you do in the area? Yeah, absolutely. Very, very definitely. He went to the local school. Uh, He was born in the house just down the road. His parents live in the house next door. They built this house mm, 30 years ago and he's lived in it for, yeah, so he's lived here for a long time, a lot longer than I have. And many of his friends are from the farming community, so also have lived here for generations. So he works with and socializes with people that he knew right through from primary school and whose parents knew each other. And I think that kind of much stronger network of social ties is something that, yeah, that I've never had. But maybe my children will. Maybe. But also I figure that they're less likely to stay here and less likely to have this lifelong connection to this place unless they become farmers at a later date. And it's too early to tell, but at the moment they're not really showing signs that that's what they'll do. I was going to say, because they're teenagers, right? So Mm -hmm. 
do they speak kind of Doric or no not at um all? no but Hamish doesn't really speak Doric either and um I think that's one of the reasons that the stuff I've been doing for you has been so kind of emotional for me because obviously Hamish's parents presumably would have been Doric speakers, but were educated out of it for really class-based reasons. And so although Hamish wasn't sent away to school or anything, he went to the local high school, um, he isn't really Doric speaking, but he can and does speak more Doric with his farming friends or contractors or agricultural country people that he's known forever and who he respects. And, you know, he he's not at all critical of the way they speak. But when I started with this, he just thought it was stupid, a waste of time, a waste of money, a waste of effort. Why are you doing this? Just didn't understand it at all. And I thought in the beginning that that was because because I was an incomer in some ways, but actually I think it's all about him and not about me at all, or that the way that many dialect speakers have internalized this must speak proper English to get on in the world, and it comes out differently in different contexts with so the kids that I met at school in Banff who maybe didn't know that they were speaking Doric until they were a bit older because they were in a completely Doric world and then when they came to school they were told to speak differently. I think that's that's one way of experiencing this kind of external pressure that you then internalise to speak a certain way. But I think here in our family setup it's oh yeah, I think I think when Hamish is being negative to me learning Doric, it's really about the way that he feels about Doric somewhere inside himself, though he doesn't articulate that in that way when I ask him. Do you think having spent that time away from the area between like nine and six, I'm just thinking that between nine and 16 is perhaps the age when you're most likely to be kind of socialized into a feeling of like this type of language is stigmatized and you should speak this way and not that that way do you think that having spent that time away has having that I guess it's given you that kind of insider outsider perspective but do you think it's kind of almost allowed you to escape some of the internalized stigma around using Doric? Yeah, maybe, because it wasn't really part of my fam my immediate family didn't really speak Doric either. And absolutely between nine and sixteen I guess is when your friends are more important and all the your know, linguistic influences are much more your friends than your parents at that time. Um, and I guess I guess I was used to being a kind of a curiosity linguistically. And I guess maybe that's when I started playing with language because it because it was already something that was a bit different and a bit fun for me to do. And because at school I learned many languages. Um, so when I came back, in fact, one of my clearest memories with Doric, just after I met Hamish, is sitting around the kitchen table with two of his farmer friends who are broad Doric speakers all the time. And at the end, when they left, Hamish said, did you understand what they were saying? And said, yes, I did understand it, but it was as though I was processing it as if it were German. Mm. You know, it it was, it did sound like another language it is another language but it did sound to me like another language that I understood well but I had to concentrate on mm. um that isn't the question you asked me no it's very interesting though like I suppose historically the way that Scots and Doric 
has been incorrectly talked about by some people is that it's like, you know, it's just a bad version of English. It's, you know, it's, it's just bad English. And we know that that's <laughs> not true. Like, it's it's a language in its own right. And there's no such thing as bad English anyway. But I guess you never would have really been in a classroom well you you would have but between 9 and 16 you wouldn't have been in a classroom where people were being told you shouldn't be speaking Doric um no absolutely not absolutely not and in fact I kind of had it in reverse when I was learning to read um my teacher in her in our reading homework when I was in p2 or 3 talked about ironing ironing the clothes and I came home and I read out my reading and my mum said but Claire it's ironing and so um yeah so no I definitely didn't get told to speak more English Mm. and less Doric because I didn't really speak Doric in the first place anyway how did you get into the PhD? How did you, why did you decide you wanted to do PhD research? <laughs> um, well, I'd started in about the year 2000, I'd started doing a PhD in the Netherlands, looking at, looking at definitions or looking at the visibility and invisibility of women in dictionaries, oh. because I was working as a lexicographer with a real interest in, in feminist linguistics at the time so that was what I was doing but I only did that for about a year and then I dropped out and that was when I moved back to Scotland actually and one of the reasons I dropped out was it just seemed kind of navel-gazing actually to be working on this on these dictionary definitions and then trying to find something that wasn't really there and although I guess I was coming at that from a personal perspective it's not really that personal what's going on in it in a dictionary definition, even though I was also working, writing definitions. So I was invested in it, but it just felt too, yeah, too insular and too inward looking. So when I moved back to Scotland, I started doing community work. I think for a little while, I was still working on an English language teaching dictionary. Um, And so I did a TESOL course, a teaching English to speakers of other language courses in the in the college an evening class. And that was the first bit of kind of teaching qualifications I'd had that was obviously very closely related to language. And that was because I was still working in dictionaries at the time. But that kind of opened those skills, those teaching skills opened the door for various kind of community work projects that I'd been doing more or less ever since. And I'd worked with groups of women and I'd worked with groups of people with learning disabilities or mental health problems and I'd worked with groups who didn't speak English as their first language. And I guess that's what I mean when I say I come at this from a social justice perspective, because it's all about, you know, what difference what difference can I, can I make through doing this kind of work or how can we collectively work together to improve the life chances for for these groups of people, including myself as a participant, as an active participant in these groups. Um, And then I think really I'd wanted to come back to PhD studies for quite a while, but um, didn't really know how to get back into academia, having been out for a long, long time. And then I got that, this job, this lovely job in Peterhead, working on a research project about migration in Scotland. And the prerequisites for that job were that you had to have a PhD in a social science and be a Russian speaker. And I had neither of those things, but it was completely the right job for me. And I really, I feel like I lagged my way in there because I didn't have the prerequisites, but I did have the community knowledge and the group skills and the insider perspective and all sorts of good things for that job anyway I got that job but my supervisor said to me if I wanted more work like that um, really I should get myself a PhD because that was what you needed so I looked on the find a PhD website and because I've got family and they're very rooted here it had to be in this area and then when I saw this one about acknowledging language bilingualism in the heartland of Scots Um, was the title that I applied for and I thought oh but I can't do that I don't know anything about Scots and I thought how ridiculous that I could blag myself a job for which you already needed a PhD and to be Russian speaking and I did that without a second thought you know I mean I, I worked really hard but I thought I can do that so why on earth couldn't I 
do a PhD about Scots in Scotland, given that I live in Scotland and I'm Scottish. So I wonder if that was in some way my own linguistic insecurities coming out in that I thought I couldn't really go for it. But very quickly, when I got it, I very quickly thought that it was actually the perfect thing for me, because partly because I have a different understanding of Scots than some people who've lived here forever, or somebody who isn't Scottish. And also, because I've done all this community work over the past 20 years in this area, I really kind of understand some things about it and also can bring all these kind of action research skills to try and make things better to try and make a difference for the kids who are growing up taking the Scots language award as a school subject who maybe don't actually feel that confident in Scots and what we're hoping to find out is that if you if you teach Scots as a school subject does it boost people's self-esteem and confidence and abilities in other areas of school life. And I think from a kind of person-centered approach, it really, really does because you're working with people on what's really core to them. And it's not just a school subject, I don't think. It's so much more. And I think that's why it's really interesting. And that's why it's doing something different for me than my dictionary definitions PhD, because it's really emotional work and that's important I think I think it's what I really want to do is work that I feel you know my key question really in my research is how do you feel about Scots and I think it's because how I feel about Scots is how this whole thing is manifesting itself it's all about the emotional connections that people have with their language or the emotional disconnections that people have with their language as well and then what we can do to kind of bridge that gap and make feel, people feel including myself feel more connected with the language of this country that we live in and what else that does when you learn that language or learn more about that language or learn more about yourself what does it do for you as a person or a community or a group in terms of belonging it's so important isn't it because like because our language is is always so connected to the people that speak it and when you've when you're valuing and legitimizing someone's language you're valuing and legitimizing that their identity as well right and that's so important Absolutely. in school to feel like to feel like who you are is valued as such an as part of your education is like vital really isn't it yeah absolutely so so as part of your work you've been you've been learning doric quite formally right yeah you've actually been going um, to classes i have been going to classes mm. What's i that well like? first well, I've been to three different sets of classes and it's been different every time. In the first place, I went to school and I sat in the classroom with the 15, 16 year old pupils and I sat there and said, right, I'm here just to be a pupil and I'm here to learn. And they looked at me as if I had two heads. So that didn't that didn't last very well. And uh, very soon I became much more of a kind of a facilitator. I was there as a researcher and to pretend I was a pupil was disingenuous but that wasn't how I meant it I really did want to learn alongside with them and be kind of immersed in the process but I did learn some stuff of course I did along the way but then there was an evening class at Aberdeen University through Scottish cultures and traditions and Ali Heather the journalist guy was the teacher and he was a colleague as well so I went along to that and that was really really helpful. In that class, there were some people from overseas um, or other people who staff members from other departments at the university who'd moved and wanted to know more about Scots and Scotland. There were also many, about half of the class were native speakers, many of whom were performance poets and writers and short story writers and storytellers who used Doric in their performance all the time, but felt that they were, I don't know, lacking in some confidence somehow, even though this was their medium, or they wanted to know a bit more, uh, wanted to know how to write it correctly, how, what, how to spell words and 
all that kind of standardization stuff, which we did talk about a little bit within the class, but it wasn't really the aim. Ali's aim to, as the teacher was to get us all producing new works in Scots. So he was always recording us and putting things out as little sound clips clip things or making us write short stories or making us retell fairy tales or something like that. So rather than kind of passively learning, we were actively producing in that class. And that was really kind of liberating, actually, to begin to make my own Scots, to begin to use it for myself rather than just to be listening and recording other people and feeling like a bit of an outsider. And also, also I, I know that I'm switching between calling it Scots and Doric. I think something that feels a bit, probably it's a false dichotomy, actually, but it feels to me that when you do it in a educational setting, then it's Scots. But when you do it at home, it's Doric. And <laughs> it does seem that way, yeah. <laughs> that's probably not really how it is, but that's probably part of the of the kind of language revitalization strategy that people who are working with it are calling it Scots, even if it's Northeast Scots, also known as Doric, so that it fits within the bigger Scots language picture, I think. And then so that was the school class, the evening class, and then Don uh, Don Leslie did the first ever undergrad course in Northeast Scots. And I signed up gaily and I went to more than half of it, but I didn't um, immerse myself in that undergrad experience quite as much because I was juggling other work commitments. And um, also, I think I was really interested in it from a pedagogical perspective. I really wanted to know what she was doing mm. and how I it was too. different. I'm so interested. Yeah, yeah, it was great. What it was like learning it as a student compared to the kind of funny things that we did in our evening class. Oh, and then also we had an online class as part of my um, Home Home Dom Dom project with migrants. Um, we had some people, some Lithuanian people said that they really wanted to learn Doric so that they could understand colleagues better, for example. So we set up this online course and then it very quickly changed, I think, because the online environment actually wasn't that great for beginners. And also because, again, in the class, although we called it Doric for beginners, about half the group were native speakers again. And so we ended up dressing up online and um, making little poems and songs and things online and kind of playing with the language. And I think that the thing that I want to say about all of that is that everyone who comes to these classes comes for kind of personal reasons more than they don't really come because they want to learn a new language. They come because they want to be more comfortable with the language that they already use, I think. And I think in lots of ways that made me feel a whole lot better because it seemed very equalizing. If everyone who uses Doric, even native speakers who use it for poems that they write themselves and use in public, even if, if even they feel a bit uncomfortable with the language, then it's not just me and it's not just because of my experience, it's because of systematic oppression. And that I guess that's where I'm going next. And it was really interesting to kind of tease that out a bit by being in class with other people. It's fascinating to me from so many points of view, but from a teaching point of view, like, is it quite different being in a Doric for Beginners class and being in an English for Beginners class? I think because the kind of language stuff I usually do is kind of conversation cafe type stuff, mm. it's much less formal than classroom based stuff. And I think my own perspective is that it's all about making connections and all about making yourself understood. Mm. So I wouldn't in the English teaching stuff I do, I wouldn't usually be saying, no, that's wrong, mm. unless somebody had specifically asked. Mm -hmm. Although I do understand that in a formal classroom situation, that might well happen. Mm. Um, in the Doric classes or Scots language classes, we very much weren't saying that's right and that's wrong. But sometimes we were doing things by group consensus. So oh. if, for example, 
we said, this is the word we're looking at, how do you spell it? And Ali would say, well, you can spell it this way, this way, or this way, and the whole standardization debate is rumbling on. So how will we spell it? And I really like that. So we kind of made a classroom standard, which probably more closely aligned with the way that Scots is being written in current newspapers than the poets who creatively invent their spellings and change them according to what they want to do. So I guess we were we were very gently saying this is more right than this is right, maybe, but not not hard and fast rules. But people would say, oh, in fact, one of the people I interviewed said this is he was doing a book reading of his own work in a library and um, he was from Fraserburgh and this was in Inverurie. So he's from the fishing community and this was a farming town and he was reading his own work. And some man in the audience said, that's not right. That's not how you speak Doric. And I think the only answer to that is, no, that's not how you speak Doric. Mm. This is how I speak Doric. And that there has to be room for a multiplicity of voices and a multiplicity of way of doing things. And I think even if that's not really the case in uh, English as a speakers of other languages classroom, it could be, or that would be a, that would be a really nice way to do it. You know, I guess the other thing is in, in our Doric classes, we're not teaching to the test, so we can just kind of play with it and, and anything can go. But then again, maybe that's a bit different in the, in the classroom, in the school classroom, where the kids do have to pass an, ex- well, pass a continuous assessment to get the mark. So maybe maybe in more formal settings there is a right or wrong but I think I think for me because I kind of mix languages and play with them and I don't really care if how people do it I it's not important to me at all if there's a right or a wrong it's more important just that we're together and that we're expressing ourselves in in one medium or another I think I think it just makes me think that maybe all language teaching should be more like the Doric classrooms that you've been speaking about. Maybe maybe experimenting with those kind of teaching methods has something to teach language teaching more broadly. Um, it's just really interesting. Yeah, I think so. I think it's yeah, I think it's a really inclusive way to do it. And I think, um, you know, I'm sure it would get, it would build up in layers like anything. I'm sure people would get more competent or more standardized or more, certainly when I write in Doric, I know that it's mostly English, but that I've got a few Doric words in. I think it's the whole Scots English continuum thing. And I think if, I'm pretty sure it would work with other languages as well. If you start, with interspersing small bits of the language you're hoping to learn. And then as you build up your your repertoire, then it would become more like the language that you're wanting to use and less like English or your first language. And yeah, I I think that would be an interesting thing to try. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I imagine it might help to take some of the anxiety out of language learning a little bit that we feel when we're trying to construct a sentence in a new language a language that's new to us from scratch kind of thing yeah how has it felt to you so for me I'm someone with a lot of kind of passive knowledge and understanding of Edinburgh Scots and Glaswegian Scots I guess too but Edinburgh's where I grew up um and but I don't I don't use it very much like you know obviously I use bits and pieces here like I've got I've very much got the accent um I've got parts of the syntax um I change it depending who I'm speaking to but you know I've been away from Edinburgh for a while I've been in in universities for a while I don't really use a lot of it day to day um and to me it would feel very strange to go to a class and yeah 
even with that kind of the different classroom format, it would it would feel strange because it would feel like I think I would have that in my head of like, is this something that is mine? Or if I'm going to a class, does that feel like it's not mine? Do you know what I mean? I thought this was something you've been exploring in a in a way that I find really interesting is that feeling of like, but does it belong to me? And you you've talked about um in your interview with Dawn, she she talked about how maybe Doric speakers sometimes feel like when people are learning Doric, it's someone else trying on their clothes but not having to live with those clothes. It must be really complicated for you because they kind of are your clothes, you know. <laughs> what is your kind of feeling now about about Doric and your relationship with it in that way? That's a really complicated question. That's a really complicated question. I think I'm not finished with it yet. I think I'm still kind of so um, I think I am more confident in trying on those clothes and wearing them for a period of time now. You know, in the beginning, when I would try on these clothes and try and speak Doric, it would be really like these are not my clothes. This is not my language. Uh, it's really uncomfortable, like having to wear a ball gown to the supermarket or something like that. But then now I would feel more like, well, certainly when I'm in a classroom now, I feel like, oh, yeah, I can do this. This is what you do. This is how I speak here. And it's okay. But when I leave this room where I work in, because I work from home, and Hamish is on the other door, on the other side of the door, listening. Well, he's not listening. He's watching TV, but he's heard bits of it. And then he says, you know, what, what, what are you doing? Why, why are you? Um, but partly because we do act, or I do, not everybody in the class, but in the online classes, I really will go and dress up. You know, we did a whole thing about clothes and we did a whole thing. Uh, we had did a burn supper thing. So I went and put on Hamish's kilt and bow tie and everything. And um, so I suppose what Don was talking about, people putting on, you know, a non-Doric speaker, putting on a Doric speaker's clothes to see what it's like. I suppose I am actually... <laughs> literally figuratively <laughs> and metaphorically metaphor, yeah. doing doing that really and it kind of helps so I wonder if putting on that costume is part of becoming a speaker in a in, but in a positive way not in an appropriating way not in a stealing somebody else's culture way but in that it is kind of scaffolding like like linguistic language learning scaffolding that helps me put on this identity so that I am more able to speak it. And maybe that's why when I go to the shops or meet my Doric speaking friends, when I'm just being me rather than being a Doric language learner, I don't speak it. But when I was in Banff, it was just beginning to shift. I was beginning to feel when I was speaking with the young people who were speaking Doric most of the time, I was beginning to feel that I could produce Doric in a natural fashion you know they could say something and I could answer the question or um or I could just throw in the occasional word here or there and it didn't feel funny anymore so I think maybe that would be the next step I think I would need to go on a, like a language immersion course like go and stay in another family or something and then it might kind of creep under my skin a bit more than just being in my clothes so I think there's a lot to be said about Dawn's kind of metaphor, but that it's not necessarily a negative thing to be trying on clothes in the way that she thought it might be. Yeah, I, I, and I do understand what she was saying about not having to live in them, not having to live with that stigmatised by some people language variety. I do understand the point she was making, but I think for me it works kind of the other way around. Mm. So I, we've been, sorry, I realise we've been speaking for ages, so I won't keep you much longer. But I just wanted to ask you a little bit at the end about um, Home Home Dom Dom, the project you've been working on. I wanted to hear a little bit about that. And I, I, can, I wanted to ask you about, you, you've been working with people who are migrants to the area who are learning Doric. And I wanted to ask you about 
what you think the similarities and differences are between their experience and yours. So their experience of coming to a place and learning Scots as something completely new and then your experience of coming back to the place where you were born and kind of, you know, rediscovering it or, you know, learning it, but kind of already knowing something about it. I think while I can't exactly speak for their experience, I think what I've witnessed is that uh, somebody, say, who moved to Peterhead, who didn't speak much English and no Scots before they got here, they learned them both in the general environment. And so when they're speaking, they would throw in Doric phrases or English phrases equally without any apparent differentiation between them. And that looks so liberating. And I'm sure that it isn't because it must be much, much harder for them to move here and not speak either language and to have to learn both and be much more obviously foreign than I am, given that I'm not even, you know, even, even. Um, so I don't want to kind of take away from any of the of the kind of difficulties that it must really be like for them. But in terms of English and Scots, learning them without baggage looks great <laughs> you know and i think that um that's definitely different from my own experiences very much different from my own experiences yeah you know i keep i've said many times in this last hour with you oh i've been learning scots but you're absolutely right i knew it fine before i started i just don't speak it but I can read it and I can write it a little bit and I know it and I know the words. It's just not something I speak. So that's uh, that's a whole other question, really, isn't it? And I guess maybe that's the question that I should be asking myself and probably the other people I speak to who know it but don't use it all the time. Why don't you use Scots or Doric in your everyday life? Because yeah, it's not it's not on my list of questions. It's definitely something I should look at more. And I don't think that's even a new speaker thing for me. I think it's probably a class thing too, how people know, more educated people might well know how to read and write in Scots than somebody who speaks it as part of their everyday life. And I don't know if there's an answer to that either you know it feels like you ask one question and all these other questions pop out or it's like peeling an onion and you've kind of you've kind of worked on one of the layers but not on any of the others yeah I don't, yeah I don't know I think I feel the same way about when I start to examine my relationship with with Scots I think as soon as I think I kind of understand it, I get a layer deeper and then I'm like, yeah. And then it's like, well, if I don't even understand my own relationship with it, <laughs> then how do I understand Scots in general? But then I suppose as well, your own relationship is probably the most difficult thing to understand, isn't it? You can understand facts about Scots much more easily than you can understand why I speak in a certain way in certain situations and why I don't in others and we're we're kind of used to having languages presented to us as like puzzles that we you know we learn the different parts and we learn how to fit them together and we kind of when we learn languages in school they're kind of presented to us as as a skill that you learn and we kind of I think what I mean is like sometimes when we're learning languages, we try and take the emotion out of it a little bit and take the identity out of it. Um, I remember asking my French teacher in school, being like, but are we learning like posh French or like, you know, like if we spoke in this French accent, what would French people think of us? And she was quite like, oh, that's a stupid question. Like She wasn't really. Really? <laughs> well, she didn't say that, but she didn't really. Maybe she didn't like the question because she wasn't sure how to answer it um in a way that would satisfy me and would not put me off because we were learning posh French and she might have been aware that in our particular classroom that wouldn't go down well like we wouldn't want to sound posh even in French 
So, but I think, yeah, I think that my language education, certainly, and I, I know, you know, things things are changing and things are different from place to place, but my language education was very like, this is a subject in school. Like, I wasn't really taught much about, when I was taught French, I wasn't taught much about it as a social thing and an identity thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I love sociolinguistics, so of course I would say put the sociolinguistics back into language education. <laughs> but, yeah, that's kind of how I feel, I think. It would be amazing. It would. It would like maybe, it, yeah. maybe I would now be, like, a more confident French... I mean, I'm not, I've got, I don't speak French ever, really. Yeah, but maybe I would... Maybe I would have got more into it, into language learning, if it'd be made a bit more personal. <laughs> I don't know. Thanks to Claire for sharing her story and for doing so with so much honesty and curiosity. Thanks, as always, to the Accentricity team, John McDermott and Martha Ryan, to Seb Felt for the music, and to Aileen Marshall for the transcription. Remember to follow the links in the episode description to buy a t-shirt, to become a member on Patreon or Steady, or to make a one-off donation. Thanks to our current supporters and past donations, we've been able to run the Move-In project without any additional funding and at no cost to the participants. We'd like to keep doing things like this in the future, and your support will help us to do so. Thanks for listening.